opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which made a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Well, every marriage goes through an initial period of time called the honeymoon phase. And it's a euphoric season where everything's going swimmingly and conflicts are virtually non-existent. During this time, some couples might even wonder, why does everyone say that marriage is so difficult? This is very easy. But inevitably, that season comes to an end. For some, the honeymoon lasts about three weeks, and for some, that honeymoon phase can last up to a year. But then, there's the first big fight. And in my experience, it's usually over money. I've enjoyed an extended honeymoon with you for the last 11 months now, but I'm sad to say the honeymoon is over. (laughs) As you see today, we are starting a two-part series on giving. And some of you will say, I knew it. He's going for the pocketbook, just like all the rest of them. But I would encourage you to hang on until this series is over because I think that you'll be very blessed about what God has to say about money and about our resources. Over the last month, we've been working on the budget that will be presented next month to the congregation. And as many of you know, uh, most churches as well as families have been struggling through this pandemic time. And Elam is no exception to that. Looking at the numbers, one would begin to despair, perhaps. But instead of causing panic, we feel that this would be a good opportunity to talk about what the Bible has to say about giving in general, and especially as related to times of crisis. I must apologize first off to any guests who have come here today. Uh, I want you to be at ease and not think we are uh, trying to coerce any money out of you. Uh, you're under no obligation or expectation to give unless you feel uh, compelled by the Lord. This is a, a service that's a gift to you. You are a guest here uh, today in this congregation. And so our series here is called Where Your Treasure Is and consists of two parts. Today I will be talking about the basis for giving, the why. And then next Sunday I'll give a teaching on the practical aspects of giving. And so let's dive into our first portion this this morning here. Why teach on giving? As we look at the basis for giving this morning, I think it's good to realize why we are doing this study in the first place. As all of you know, money in and of itself is nothing. A $1 bill and a $100 bill are made of essentially the same material. Some ink, some cotton, some paper... But everyone here would rather have a $100 bill than a $1 bill because of the power that it has to get you stuff that you want. And the stuff that we spend our money on says a lot about who we are and what our priorities are. God is interested in our priorities 
And as a pastor, I'm interested in your priorities as well. If I were to look in each of your checking accounts and see the kind of things that you spent your money on, I would be able to understand better what your priorities as a person are. And so, Jesus said it this way, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. I want you to notice the order of words here. It doesn't say, where your heart is, there your treasure will be. Jesus is telling us something very profound here. He's telling us that when we put our treasure somewhere, our heart follows the money. Isn't that interesting? Not the other way around. And so when you begin to put your treasure somewhere, your heart will become involved in that. It will start to become interested in that. Back when I was a barber, I didn't have any kind of pension plan. And when I became a pastor, that was the first time I started having money set aside into a 401k account that was connected to the AFLC. And that continues on to this day. And before that, I probably could have told you what the stock market was about and maybe what a mutual fund was, but I wasn't very interested in them. But as soon as my money started going into those mutual funds, as soon as my money started going into those stocks, I became interested in them. I started checking on them once a week. Oh, there's my money. It grew $5, right? And so you become interested in things when you put your money there. And so you can be assured that I'm interested in the stock market now. And so, my heart has followed my money, and God wants your heart to be with Him. He wants him, you to be concerned about the things that He's concerned about. And so we're going to look at what the Bible says about these resources, about our money, so we can have a better understanding at the end of this and be blessed in our giving and in our money. And so, we come to the first basis for giving. The first basis is recognition of ownership. We have to understand and to establish that all things that we own come from somewhere. They originally come from somewhere. And I'm aware that we all know this instinctively, that things come from somewhere. But many times in our lives, we don't act like it. We don't act like this is something that's on loan to us. We call it ours. This is our house, even though many times the bank has a good portion of it, or it's my car, or my this and that. And so in our language, we claim ownership of these things. We earn money, or we inherited property, and so it's ours. But let's look at what Scripture says about these possessions. First of all, in Psalm 50, verses 10 through 11, we see that all the animals belong to God. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Also, gold and silver, which are the basis for most national economies, God says they belong to him in Haggai 2.8. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. And so even the basis for economies belongs to the Lord. That money that's supposed to be backed up in the Federal Reserve, all that uh, gold and silver that's there, that's why you had things called the silver certificate, even though that's changed and we won't go into all that this morning, those belong to the Lord. 
Also, the Bible tells us that God's people belong to him. We see this in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured, treasured possession out of all the peoples that are on the face of the earth. Now, originally that meant Israel, but now, as a Christian, you are an extension of Israel. All that history in the Old Testament, that's your history, because now you are a continuation of Israel. And so you belong to the Lord. And just to make it clear, in case we wondered if there are certain things that are not owned by God, he goes on in Psalm 24, verse 1, to show the degree of ownership that he has. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. And so everything in the world, all the people, all the animals, everything that you see belongs to God. And so, as we recognize the fact that God rightfully owns us and everything, this changes the way that we view possessions and our life. We see that instead of owners, we are rather stewards of God's possessions. We are stewards. This word comes from royalty. In royal families, the royalty owned those things, and the stewards took care of the king's possessions. A certain land or a certain uh, job or task, you became a steward of those things. And so we see that God has made us a steward of his stuff. A few verses that show this stewardship would be helpful, I believe. Proverbs 22.4 says, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. And so he has given us our riches, our money, honor, and life to steward. You are a steward of your life. It doesn't belong to you. In fact, the Bible tells us that Jesus holds all things together, your life, by his powerful word. And so you are a steward of that. In Proverbs 18.22, it takes it a step further. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. And so here's another example of stewardship. Men, you thought it was your good looks and your wonderful charisma and charm that won that wife? No, it was a gift from the Lord. And you are a steward of his daughter now. And that's important that you remember that she belongs to the Lord. She's his daughter. You don't want dad coming knocking on the door. Hey, why are you treating my daughter like this? She's on loan to you from the Lord. And our children as well. We see this in Psalm 127 verse 3. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. And so your children are on loan. You are stewarding, stewarding them. They really belong to the Lord. And they've been given to you for a period of time to steward. And so here we see the first basis for giving. That everything belongs to God and is only on loan to us. Now, the wonderful thing about this is that God commands us to give, and it's a command, by the way, only a portion of what we have that we are stewarding back to the Lord as an offering to Him. Reminds me when my children were little, and we would go to the ice cream store, right? 
and we'd go to the shop there and they would get their ice cream and I'd take a little spoon and I would go to each of my children and I'd say, hey, can dad have a little scoop of your ice cream here? Right? Now, there's a recognition here that I didn't need their ice cream, right? I could have just bought my own ice cream. In fact, the ice cream they had, I bought. <laughs> okay? I used to call it the dad tax, okay? And the main point was to see where their hearts were. I was trying to train them in generosity. No, it's mine. You can't have any, right? And that shows a selfish heart, that we don't recognize where those things have come from. And many Christians, unfortunately, are like that. No, God, you can't have it. I won't have enough for me. And not understanding that it all came from Him in the first place. And I don't need their lick. God doesn't need a lick of your stuff. Because He could just make more of His own stuff, right? If He wanted it, He could just snap His fingers and it would come into existence. We actually see this in the scenario where Jesus is talking about the tax with Peter. Peter comes to Him and says, uh, should we pay the tax? And Jesus doesn't go out and start digging a ditch or working in the field and earn some money and then go pay the tax. What he does is he says, Peter, go and cast your line into the ocean, the sea there, and pull out the first fish and look in its mouth. And there was a coin, a gold coin in there that paid enough for the tax for him and for Peter. <laughs> right? So do you know that God knows where every single buried treasure on the entire earth, anything that is worth any money at some garage sale that you could put on Pawn Stars? He knows where all that stuff is. And he could tell you if he wanted to. Go down the road, dig in this spot, you'll find some buried treasure and you'll be set for life. But he doesn't do that, does he? Because he wants us to steward things. He gives us what we need in the moment, and we steward those things before the Lord. The second basis for giving is for the support of the church. This is the way that God designed his church to work. And first of all, I want to talk about the way that God didn't design the church to work. Even though many Americans think of churches as many corporations, the fact is they are not companies at all. In an American company, there's a particular model that we follow, right? And that model consists of a few factors. The first factor is that the company must choose to develop a product or a service which they will try to promote and sell. Let's choose ones that are familiar to us, right? Say, microwaves and haircuts, a product and a service. The second factor is that the more microwaves and haircuts that you sell, the more money you make. And the final factor is that any person that is hired must contribute to the goal of selling more microwaves and haircuts. Now, the church is not based on this model. If it were, the main goal for the staff here would to be, get, to, to, be to get as many people in the pews as possible, and then try to extract as much money as possible from them. And then the bottom line would begin to grow up, right? You'd start making money off of the people. And so if this were the main goal, to get more people into the pews, then the bigger your church was, 
the better you would be doing as a corporation. The pastor would be like the CEO, and the council would be like the board, and all decisions would be around that goal. Get more money into the church. Get more people into the church. But instead, the Bible tells us the pastor is not a CEO. Rather, he is like an ox. We see this in 1 Timothy 5, 17-18, where it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered of worthy double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, something we do a lot of. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Notice here that the ox's job is not to produce grain, right? The farmer brings that in. God brings in the grain. He brings in the people. The ox instead treads out the grain. We have machines that do this now, but what they used to do in the day was grain had a hard, crusty shell on it. And that crusty shell needed to be broken open by physical force in order to get at the stuff inside so that you could make bread out of it and products out of it. And so what the ox did is they take this barn and they tie them to like a thing in the middle there that would rotate. And that ox would just go in a circle all day long. That's his job. And he's walking on the grain and he's breaking off that crusty outside called the chaff. And then that chaff has gotten rid of and the grain is good for consumption now. And so how this relates to the pastor is a little bit interesting. Okay? Because you are the grain. And God has brought you into the barn. But when you come in, you have a hard, crusty shell on you. You're not fit for consumption. You can't make bread out of you yet, right? And so what the pastor does is he crushes the grain. He's crushing that hard, crusty shell off you. He's telling you stuff that you don't want to hear so that you can become the kind of person that you want to be and can be consumed by those around you. Bread for food for the people around you. And so, that's the job of the pastor. That's my main job. And it's interesting, in regard to giving, what happens here is, when the ox is in the barn, what some people would do was they would muzzle the ox. (laughs) But some farmers wouldn't do that. They would take a muzzle off, and the ox was just free. And so he's chomping, or he's, he's uh, stomping on the grain, and every now and then he stops, and he bends down, and he picks up some of the grain, and he eats it, and he's more excited, and he goes back to his work, and he's refreshed like that. What that means for the pastor is that you are like the grain that provides encouragement for your pastor. Your pastor can keep on treading the grain when he knows that he doesn't have to worry about his next meal or his house or any of those things. And by the way, there are some churches that muzzle their pastors. They don't provide for their pastors. They don't provide a salary. In fact, I know some pastors that work two and sometimes three jobs in order to provide for their family and then voluntarily pastor. And you know what those churches think about that? They think that their pastor is somehow more spiritual because he's doing it voluntarily. He's not doing it for pay. The problem with that is that it's unbiblical. 
God doesn't want your ox to be worried about his next meal. He wants him to be able to eat some of the grain while he's treading it out. And so that's one of the basis for your provision for the church. Now, it's interesting that some churches have grown full, but it's not because their pastor is doing a good job. It's actually that he's doing the opposite of what the Lord wants him to do. He's not treading out the grain. He's trying to make the grain feel comfortable. The Bible tells us that many will come wanting their itching ears tickled. They want to hear what they want to hear. And so those churches get super full. And the pastors get rich off of those grain that come in. The grain, though, keeps its crust. And so in a normal model, in a company, what you would see is that if I sell more microwaves or I do more haircuts, then I, as an employee, would begin to see increase in my salary. As a natural, that was the way my barbershop was. If customers didn't come in, I didn't make any money. The better I did, though, and the more customers I got, the more money I got. But that's not the model in the church. Because if it were, if I could somehow fill this place up, then I could get a bonus, right? <laughs> Pastor, let's give him a raise. He's doing such a great job because so many people are coming. But what about the opposite? Like, what if the culture now has shifted and people don't want to be Christians, they don't want to hear this, and suddenly we're in a post-Christian era and the numbers begin to dwindle or we have pandemics and things like this, then maybe we should cut the pastor because then he'll try harder. The pastor's job is to faithfully tread out the grain. If your pastor is doing that, then provide for him. If he's not, get rid of him and get somebody who will tread out the grain. And that's the big difference here. The third reason for our giving is actually an interesting one. It's for our own benefit. <laughs> this brings us to our last one that's addressed most in Scripture. We give for our own benefit. Now let me explain before you think I'm going off into some prosperity gospel deal here. We must be true to Scripture because it tantalizes us with the promise of a reward. God tells us He will reward us as we give to Him. In fact, He's wired us up as humans to be concerned about our own welfare. We know this from Ephesians 5.29 that says, No man ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and provides for it. Now some may say, well, I don't care about a reward as long as God is being glorified. That might sound scriptural, but it's a lie. <laughs> because the Bible tells us it's a lie. It's not a sin to be concerned about what happens to you. It's not a sin to want to receive a reward for the thing that you do. The sin is wanting the wrong kind of reward. The sin is looking for the temporal instead of the eternal. That's the sin. And so, this temporary thing fades away. And it's lost. Forever. Let's look at a few verses that, shows God, that show God's desire to reward us. Proverbs 19.17 
Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him. Isn't that something? Give to the poor, and then hound them so you can get paid back. No, God said he will repay you if you lend to the poor. Matthew 10, uh, 42, whoever gives to one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a, a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Give him a cold cup of water because it's the right thing to do. No, because you will be rewarded. Also in Hebrews 6.10, for God is not unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown to his name by serving the saints, and you still do. He will not overlook it. And then finally, Luke 6.38, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, and put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Notice that what is received back is significantly more than what's given. All right? Pressed down, shaken down, put more in, poured on your lap, it's overflowing all over the place. That's how God repays. Now I'd like to clarify that this reward is what it is because many limit it to security in this life. And I'm not saying that God will never grant someone great riches in this life, but I think it's more rare than we would like to think. And the reason that I think it's more rare is that the majority of Christians in the world are poor. Also, we see the warning that Jesus gave about the deceptiveness of wealth and riches. I believe the real reward that God speaks of in this verse is the approval and blessing of our Father when we see how the lives are impacted around us. Did you know in heaven, your reward is not a bigger mansion? It's not more luxurious food. It's not more gold or jewelry. If you want more gold, go out to the streets and dig it up. It's right there on the street. The reward in heaven that you have our relationships that you began to pour yourself into in this life. In fact, the Bible says you'll be walking down the street and somebody will holler out, Pastor Scott! And you'll look, don't even know this person, who are they? <laughs> oh, it's somebody from my father's home that I've never met. And I put my treasure toward them. And now I am welcomed into a heavenly mansion in a deeper relationship that was begun here. That's the reward. And it's an amazing reward, isn't it? In conclusion here, I'd like to be closing here by saying this only works for Christians. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you don't believe in Christ, you're not a child of God, I would beg you to keep your money don't give. It does you no good to put it into the offering plate. Chris Light, our financial secure, uh, secretary, is probably having a heart attack right now. Wait, don't tell people not to give. <laughs> but it's true. Proverbs 15.8 says that the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. It's a stench to him. He hates it. But when his children give to him, 
It's kind of like giving your kids an allowance, right? And then seeing them turn around and buy something for you. You ever did that, dads? Here, kids, here's an allowance. Buy me a Christmas present or something. You know it's already your money, right? That's the way it is for God and us. He's given you all this, but it's a blessing to his heart when he sees his children turn around and give back to him. It's an amazing thing. I just want to reaffirm the very last thing I want to do here is I want to reaffirm the gospel message, right? The gospel message isn't give more money and you'll be saved or do X and you'll be saved. No, our works don't save us, right? But what are our works? Our works are many times an indication of where our heart is at. Do we have faith? Do we believe in God's mercy? Do we trust in His grace? It's like the fruit on a tree, right? When the roots are good and they're in the soil, it's going to produce. And I see stingy people, people that just, I've, I can't count them many times where people have come in my office, well, I don't give pastor, but da, 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 whatever, and they have some excuse about it. That's their heart. It's mine. I get to keep it. I'm not going to make it if I don't hang on to it. If I give 10% or whatever, I'm going to not survive. <laughs> and then we look at a passage like today where this widow threw everything that she owned <laughs> into the box because she knew that her life was in God's hands anyways. Next week we're going to talk about the practical aspects of giving. So if you get your mind around this, you know I believe that everything that God has given me, I'm stewarding. Now how do I practically walk this out? And we're going to be talking about things like offerings and tithes and missionaries and some of these different things. Because sometimes you've got to put a little meat on the bone and get things in our practice. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us all things to enjoy. Lord, I pray for my own heart, I know it can be stingy. I know I can want to cling to things and be coveting them and holding on when I should be releasing. Lord, I pray for our congregation. Lord, help us to be ones who are givers of those things that you've given us, not hoarding the lick for ourselves. But Lord, I just pray that you would change our hearts and minds today if we need to have them changed in this area. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. See
Thank you for tuning in to this sermon series from Elam. If you are encouraged today, would you consider supporting our online ministry through a financial contribution? Personal checks can be made out to Elam Lutheran Church and sent to 11504 26th Street, Northeast, Lake Stevens, Washington, 98258. Or you can give online at elamlutheran.net. Thank you and may God bless you the rest of your day.